Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am your host, Brad Hicks, and this is the Spooky SLV Podcast. Let's get started. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Let me uh, first start off by apologizing for not having the show out last night. Um, Normally, the show is on Tuesday at 6 p.m., and Monday I uh, got busy and forgot about the show entirely. And then uh, yesterday we were out of town all day. So I'm recording tonight. So let's get started. Okay, we're going to start off tonight by reading a couple stories. Uh, One, it has nothing to do with the San Luis Valley, but I haven't been getting a whole lot of submissions lately. So we're going to start out with... uh, a story from Big Sky Ghosts. It's Eerie True Tales of Montana, Vol- Montana, Volume 1 by Deborah D. Munn. Now, I've tried to find Deborah and get permission to read from this. Haven't been able to find her, haven't been able to get hold of her, haven't been able to reach her in any way. I even tried contacting the uh, publishing company. No luck there either. So, we're going to start out with the skull of Bone Basin. 70 odd years ago, and Old storyteller with a big handlebar mustache spun a tale so eerie that it still sends shivers down the spine of Theodore Bish. When he was a small child, Theodore lived 10 miles south of Whitehall in west, southwestern Montana. During those quiet, peaceful times before radio and TV, neighbors often depended on each other for hospitality as well as entertainment after dark. Theodore remembers whenever folks heard the jingling sound of trace chains from horses and wagons rumbling by the house, they would go out with a lighted lantern and invite the travelers to come inside for coffee or even stay all night. In those days when neighborliness was the rule rather than the exception, some homesteaders made a chilling find in nearby Bone Basin. 600 head of cattle had been snowed in there and starved to death, giving the area its name. And the appellation became even more fitting the day a human skull with a round hole in it was discovered and exhumed from the bank of a skid trail the path over which logs were hauled out by horses. A man whose name Theodore has long since forgotten took the skull to his home. The the man's wife refused to let him keep it in the house, so he took it out to the shed. Shortly after, the couple heard the familiar nocturnal sounds of trace chains jingling and horses clop-clopping and wagons rattling outside. As he was accustomed to do, the husband responded by getting up, dressing, lighting his lantern, and going out to welcome whatever neighbors were passing by. But he was greeted only by the lonely blackness of the night and no wagon in sight. Puzzled, the would-be host went back inside and returned to his bed. Each night for a week, the same thing happened. The sound of trace chains jingling, horses clop-clopping, and wagons rattling by could be heard clearly by everyone inside the house. But when the husband went outside to check, There was nothing there. The wife began to suspect she knew the cause of the mysterious sounds. She insisted that her husband remove the skull from the shed and bury it deep in the earth, somewhere far enough away from the skid trail that it would never be uncovered again. The husband did as his wife wished, burying the skull among many of the cattle bones of Bone Basin. That night, he was relieved not to hear the phantom jingling of trace chains, the clop-clopping of horses, and the rattling of wagons passing by. The spirit belonging to the skull must have been satisfied at the last, because once the grisly thing had been securely reburied, no one ever heard those sounds again. 
Theodore Bish has lived in the Whitehall area his entire life, and he is now well into his late 70s. But he admits that he still gets an eerie feeling whenever he remembers the mustache man telling him and his father the story. And whenever he passes by the spot of the skull's reburial, he shivers as he remembers his father's words. That's where that fellow sleeps. Interesting story. I may have to read some more out of this book. There's not a whole lot of stories in it, but it's really good from what I can tell. I've only read a, a few. I've dog-eared a couple pages, but that was, that was really good. Okay, the next story will be out of Christopher O'Brien's book, The Mysterious Valley. S stories, if you haven't read it, it's stories about the valley, like uh, spooky stories, UFO stories, mostly UFO and weird contact stories. There's a few uh, odd creature stories or ghost stories in here, but um, Christopher has graciously given me permission to read anything I want out of his books, and I have... Uh, uh, the Mysterious Valley and Enter the Valley. So I'm going to be reading stories out of there until I get more submissions. <laughs> but uh, let's get on with it. And this one is called The Light on the Mountain. The Light on the Mountain, July 18th, 1992, 4.30 a.m., Sand Dunes Road, Alamosa County. Brendan O'Brien, my younger brother and former UAD investigator Bill McIntyre, had taken a trip to Kuchara, Colorado. While there on business, they were introduced to an alleged abductee being shielded from publicity by the townspeople. They also met an individual who, along with three other families, recently had witnessed a large diamond-shaped object extending a telescoping shaft into an abandoned mine in broad daylight. Several of the witnesses had studied the strange object through binoculars. Brendan and Bill found out that no one they interviewed would go on the record concerning the event, but all insisted that it would really happen. The two took care of their business and started back toward Crestone late that night. Brendan was driving while Bill snoozed in the passenger seat of the small Ford Ranger truck. In the pre-dawn, eight miles south of the sand dunes, a brilliant white explosion lit up the entire mountainside. McIntyre was awakened by the impact. Whoa, stop. There's no moon out. You can see the trees. That's way above treeline. There's no road anywhere near there. Pull over, McIntyre cried. They stopped 100 feet up a dirt road and parked with a light framed in the truck's windshield. Brendan switched off the headlights but left on the large orange parking lights. The distant light changed to orange. Wow, Brendan exclaimed. Did you see that? McIntyre sat quietly, staring at the light that he estimated was three to four miles up the Pioneer Canyon at about 11,500 feet. Brendan turned his headlights back on and the light instantly changed back to white and appeared to start revolving in place. The two sat dumbfounded until Bill Steinle finally stammered, Should I get the camera? They had an SVHS camera in the back of the truck. Someone would have had to get out and walk behind the truck to grab it. I don't know if it would be a good idea to tape it yet. Let's get closer, Brendan suggested. Experimenting, he flipped his headlights back off, leaving his parking lights on. The object again matched the color. What the hell is that? Headlights on, he put the truck in gear and started up the mountain. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Bill yelled at this as the light mirrored their actions. They hurtled down the mountainside directly at them. The tops of the trees illuminated it as it fell below the tree line. Brendan panicked, making a quick U-turn and racing back toward the pavement. Reaching the sand dunes road, he hit the brakes for a quick right turn. McIntyre never taking his eyes off the light. Watching, 
watched it turn red. Hold it, he yelled to Brandon. It stopped. The two shaken travelers sat silently for an undetermined amount of time as the light gradually grew smaller and more intense, reminding them of a ruby-red laser sight. It then floated across the valley to the south, shot straight up and out at 45-degree angle, and according to both witnesses, turned into a star. The next morning they told me of their experience, and I remembered my own strange sightings. You know, I read this book, both books, three times. And every time I read it, I was like, oh, okay, you know, I remember hearing something about that. Or I remember there was one instance of one of the stories, and I'll find it in the books. I'll have to reread them. Um, that we were witnesses to the story that's in the book. Um, he was interviewing some uh, some teenager, I guess, about some stuff that happened. You, It was all witnessed from Alamosa, from Midtown Alamosa. I mean, it was kind of crazy. It was helicopters. You could tell were helicopters, lights that you had no idea what they were. Uh, some moving really fast, some moving in large groups, and some moving very, very slowly. Uh, when I find that one's story, I will bring it on and read it to you guys. It's a good one. Okay, the uh, final story tonight is an actual submission submitted by a friend of mine. Um, it's the only submission I've had since uh, the last few came in from... Um, the Sangre de Cristo High School students. And uh, Travis, if you are listening to this, I know you're principal of the uh, grade school now, if I'm correct. Congratulations on that. But um, make sure those kids tell some more stories. <laughs> if it wasn't for those kids and you, um, this whole podcast would have ended weeks ago. But uh, again, I appreciate that. But let's get on with the story. The Mill Mine Story by Sarah Walker. I grew up in the late 20th century in the Colorado Rockies, and back then the area was still very undeveloped. Most houses were at least a few miles hike away, and town was around an hour by car to the east. Thus, we had no close neighbors. On top of that, we regularly got snowed in during winter, sometimes trapped for a week or so until we could get the three or four feet of snow plowed. The main thing, though, was we had no technology to entertain ourselves with. No cell phones, they weren't even around yet, at least not widespread use, and the internet was some odd nerd thing only a few computer scientists bothered with. And you think no cell phones is bad? Heck, we not only had a landline, only had a landline, but we also still had a party line on it. For those of you who don't know what that is, it is when a group of people share a phone line because there aren't many phone lines in the area due to low population. Places in Alaska still have them, for example. What did you mean? What did that mean, you ask? It just means that sometimes when you picked up the landline phone to make a call, someone else would be already using it and you'd have to wait. Needless to say, it made phone calls very interesting and sometimes people wouldn't hang up and you would listen instead of your private conversation. You could easily tell if someone did this, though. You'd hear a click if they picked up mid-call, or you might hear them breathing. But basically, it just meant we never talked about anything really personal on the phone. TV wasn't really around either, because back then there was no reception up in the Rockies. On the best of sunny days, we would maybe get two channels. So what did a kid who had no neighbors their own age, no cell phone, no internet, no TV, or VCR do with their free time? Mostly, I just hiked around the area throwing rocks watching bugs, reading, that kind of thing. But if I was feeling lonely, 
Imo might go down and talk to the one neighbor we did have for a short period. He was an old man named Renoir, who'd been a miner back in the early 1900s, growing up and working the area as a logger or miner his entire life. I loved to hear about it, and he loved to tell me these, those stories, particularly ones included my childhood home. An old silver mine used to process ore from the mine right next to the house. Miners even used to live in my old house, and sometimes me and my sister would try and see if their ghosts still hung around the place. Mining was hard work. Men, women, women, and even little kids, too, died all the time from the mines collapsing or from dust inhalation and more. Renoir loved telling me about his life up there living in the woods. And though I knew that the majority of the tales were probably fictional, but to this day there's one story I honestly wonder about. The day I heard this story was a nice summer day. No school and no friends staying over for the night meant I was bored. So I decided to go down the road to see the octogenarian neighbor. As I walked up, I was happy to see he was home, sitting outside his little camper he'd had set up down the road from us, whittling away at something he was making out of wood. Hey now, sweetie, I was just thinking about you. Why don't you grab a chair? I have a story for you. Interested, I did, as he asked, pulling up a chair and settling in to listen. I've been wanting to tell someone this for the last few years. Maybe you will understand what happened. At worst, I can get it off my chest. I grinned happily, stoked, stoked the old guy was going to impart some old crazy tale that was probably just a bunch of BS. I didn't care, though. I was just happy to be doing something other than sitting and watching the clouds crawl slowly across the bright blue July sky. When I was a little shaver like you, my daddy and I used to live in the mining camp nearby with my sisters and my mom. Sometimes when he didn't have to work, which was rare, we would he would take me out hiking. The day we headed over yonder and hiked into an area we'd never been before, as we turned a corner, my father suddenly exclaimed, Now where did that come from? I wasn't sure what he meant. I wasn't as sharp-eyed as my dad. What do you mean, daddy? Well, look at that, he said, motioning towards a tangle of growth and shadow near a reddish cliff wall. At first, I didn't see what he meant. What? There, look. I turned and saw what he meant. I think it's an abandoned mine. He rushed over to the spot and began to pull the overgrowth away. Soon, I could see an opening in the cliff, a sharp black hole outlined against the surrounding rock. As he cleared the brush, it was then I swore I could hear what sounded to be a cat maybe howling. Excited by this, I rushed over to try and help, and when my daddy suddenly stopped as if something had just occurred to him. What, daddy? I said, stopping to see what was wrong. He put his finger up to his mouth in a shush gesture and titled, tilted his head to listen. The mewling continued for a second, but soon stopped. But still my father stood with his finger pressed against his thin lips. Finally, after almost a full minute, he turned to me, a strangely solemn look on Tan's face strangely solemn look on his tanned face. Albert, he almost whispered. His voice was so quiet and low. Dad? I was wrong. There isn't a mine here. It's just rocks. He moved to the side, blocking my view of the cut entrance, grabbing my arm. We need to get home. Your mother is going to kill me. Pulling me away from what I knew was an entrance. But Dad, wait. Look. Dad, look. Isn't that the entrance right there? I tried to wiggle out of his grasp and that had grown tighter than necessary for the situation. As I attempted to push past him, he spun and stopped me, looking at me with an expression I still remember and gives me goosebumps even at 88 years old. You see, my dad was a friendly man, and when he was alive, happy and kind, 
pretty much all the time. But that day, something hard crept into his voice, something I had never seen my dad, seen in my dad. Stop it. So I stopped and I looked at him, confused and more than a little hurt. Don't argue with me, Albert James Renoir. Now, come on. We need to go home now. Close to tears, I closed my mouth and followed him back to the camp wordlessly. The mood of the day having darkened terribly, and by the time we got back, I just happy to get away from his weird mood. I thought that would be the end of it, but a few days later, he came up to me. Albert, you saw it, didn't you? It was before the camp served up dinner, and I was helping set up the tables. He wouldn't look at me, only stood next to me and stared off into the distance, the dark tree line lit up by the setting sun. I was afraid to tell him I had, but I was more afraid if he'd, he'd get even angrier if I lied. And I knew he would know that I was lying. He knew I had seen it. Yes, I saw it, I told him quietly, readying myself for his response. He didn't say anything for a bit, but finally he turned to me, grim-faced and serious. Listen to me, Albert, and listen well. This is not a joke. You must never go back to there, okay? I made a big mistake in taking you there. A big, big mistake. I shouldn't have done that, but I didn't realize where we were. I just don't, just don't hike that direction again, okay? I remember I just nodded, and we never spoke of it again. The old miner stopped for a moment, his mouth slightly open. But then he seemed like he decided something, and he closed it. He went back to whittling the stick he'd been carving when I'd initially walked up without saying anything more. Not knowing what to say to the old miner, I added, Huh, that was weird your dad did that. Renoir nodded and looked at me. Well, that isn't the end of the story. That is just... Right then, Renoir's wife came out to the trailer, shouting loudly for her husband. Mrs. Renoir was ancient and deaf as a post, as was Mr. Renoir. Albert, Albert, why my stars? Hi there, Sarah. How are you, sweetie? Would you like to one of these cookies, she asked. What kid says no to a cookie? I happily took it and began to eat while the old woman told her husband that he needed beans if he was going to make some dish. She was supposed to for Mr. Renoir. With that, the moment was broken. I never did get to hear the rest of Renoir's story, but I have an inkling of what might have happened to him those decades ago. How, you ask? Because once I heard about that mine, I began to look for it. So one day, I found it. About a month later, I was out walking with my old sister MJ and my brother Ed when I remembered the story the old miner had told me. I wanted to one-up my siblings because they had found a fallout shelter and World War II rations inside which they had brought back to the house and shared with me. I do not recommend eating World War II rations almost 80 years later. Just saying. Anyway, I wanted to show them I knew about this cool places too. So I said, well, I know there's a haunted mine. Now to this day, I don't know why I said that. Old Renoir hadn't even finished his story, and I had no idea what he'd been planning on telling me. But it felt right, so I just went with it. Yeah, right, my brother said, making a goofy face like, at me like I was an idiot. I'm serious. There's an old abandoned mine up here. MJ turned. Really? Where? I shrugged. Well, I'm not sure. Mr. Renoir told me, but he said it was up here somewhere. We need a flashlight. My sister looked at my brother and shrugged. Might as well. Okay, which way? Ed left to grab a flashlight and came back quickly. Why don't we go that way? I pointed in the direction Renoir had, and my brother and sister agreed. We began to go up the mountain, and after an hour or so, I was losing hope. 
I started to realize the old man must have been weaving more tall tales. I found myself wondering how the story would have ended when I put, heard my sister shout, Oh my God, it is here. There the hole was my, as my sister pulled away the brush growing around the entrance. Instantly, we all walked into it, pulled by childish curiosity. Where do you think it goes, Ed shrugged. Some tunnels just end because the cave-ins, others go through the mountain. I didn't make take more than five minutes for us to decide to go in, at least a little way, or at least try to. My brother went first and was able, to, was able after crouching and squeezing a little, to get into the old tunnel of the mine. It's big in here. It's fine. Soon we were all in the tunnel and exploring the old place. There was a track that ran down the center of the mine, while in some places it was full of water and reddish thick mud. We tried to keep our feet from getting covered in the viscous mud, but finally gave up and just clomped through. After about 45 minutes of walking, we saw a dim light in the distance. We went to it. As we drew nearer, I began to get a really bad feeling. Something was not right. I was afraid to tell my brother and sister, though, so I said nothing. I was used to that happening because I was so much younger than them. Not as much with MJ, but my brother is almost 10 years older than me. Anyway, the feeling grew worse and worse until I got close. When I saw that off to the side of the tunnel was a small side tunnel, and I was positive I could see a black anthropomorphic shape in there, in the reddish shadows, a strange color due to the sandstone, com sandstone composition of the walls. And it looked like its eyes were glowing red. I almost shouted, and before I realized what I was doing, I ran out of the tunnel to the exit where the dim light had been coming from. Once outside, I kept running and finally only stopped when my sister caught me and asked me what the hell my problem is. There was something in there. I wanted to say something, but I didn't. I was already teased so goddamn much by the two of them that I didn't want to give them any more ammunition. It never once occurred to me that I might have hallucinated. The feeling was so real, so intense. Anyway, they of course saw nothing. And my brother even told me after I mentioned the side tunnel that he explored it and nothing was back there. I never went back to that cave. My sister told me enough. It told me, though, that through the years she walked by the entrance and it's gone. There must have been a landslide and buried the old entrance with debris. Weirdly, the place we exited has no indication of ever having been any kind of tunnel exit entrance. I mean, it was over 20 years ago, but you would think it would leave some kind of sign. I sometimes dream about the man I thought I saw in the cave. I never got to speak to Renoir again. The next summer I moved to my mom's and apparently he died a, a few after I was living in Oregon. I wish I knew what he was been ready to tell me. And this is a true story. Sarah, thank you very, very much. And I apologize for my reading of the story. I botched that one all to hell. <laughs> I, I'm getting out of practice here. I need to actually get either better glasses or, uh, I don't know, I don't know, get better at reading maybe? Go back to school for a little while? Go sit with the kids in grade school and learn my ABCs one more time? Sarah, thank you very, very much. Um, if you want to submit stories, I'm all for it. Like we talked about the other day, I'd be happy to help you out with your drawings and shadings and stuff like that. If you want to submit more stories, I can always use submissions. Thank you, hon. Okay, folks, that's it for me tonight. Um, I hope you enjoy the podcast this evening. Um, I will have another one out um, on the correct time next week, I promise. 
And before I go, I just want to give a shout out to my buddy Andreas uh, Herrera, who has given me the intro music and the outro music to this. And he's the one that turned me on to doing the podcast in the first place. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, let's all show him some love. He has his own podcast, Decibels of the Decibels Deep podcast. I'm having issues today here on Spotify. He also uh, follow him on uh, Instagram at the same name at Decibels Deep Podcast and also Entropy in Motion Music at Entropy in Motion Music on Instagram. He's a great musician and uh, a great guy. Now, again, I'm going to talk about support. (laughs) I know times are hard right now and uh, I unfortunately know that all too well. So, being an unemployed man who is working on his art and his podcast, I'm going to ask for help with the support. Um, it's on the uh, Spotify homepage of my um, podcast, of the SLV, the Spooky SLV podcast. There's the homepage and there's a link in the description that leads to the support. The support is kind of like Patreon. There are three different tiers. There's a 99 cent tier. There's a $4.99 tier. And then there is the $9.99 tier. And this is a monthly obligation for the most part. You can do one month and cancel. You, you know, plain and simple. You pay, you know, 99 cents. You pay $4.99. You pay $9.99. And you can just cancel if you want to. Now, if you wanted to do a monthly subscription, I would be eternally grateful because that's, you know, money that I'm saving up on the uh, podcast as far as ads and uh, the support, I'm hopefully going to buy new equipment. It's going to be a while in the coming, but it it will be put to that um, use. So please, if you feel like you need to, you have to, you want to, or you can spare a dollar, please sign up for the uh, uh, support on the link through the Spotify homepage. But until then, I am going to say good night, folks, and we will see you next week. Bye.